So, good evening. Thank you for coming in a very, very cold and unwelcoming evening. But you've got a really glorious Christmas tree there. So, if that's glowing as much as I was when I was running up the Strand, then we're doing well. So, tonight's lecture is What Do Judges Do in the Family Court? And, effectively, it's me delivering on the promise I made when I first took up this um, appointment, which is trying to explain to you what we do within the four walls of our court and I'll be dealing with a number of areas. How the family courtroom works and who is needed within it to make it fit for purpose. What challenges the family justice system faces. What does a judge do and what respect are they due for it? And what makes for a good judge? And then lastly, what happens when a judge slips below the standard that we expect of them? So there's quite a lot to cover. Number one, is this what you think of? When you think of judges, are they enemies of the people? Are they to be defined by their sexuality when in fact they're performing a job? Am I an enemy of the person when I'm sitting in court and I'm deciding whether or not to remove a child permanently from a family to place the child for adoption? Am I there victimising the family or am I protecting the child? Classic examples. Just a few weeks ago, a child removed from her birth family and not placed with her grandparents and placed for adoption and then killed, and as we know by the jury verdict, murdered by the adoptive father. So were we protecting that child from a birth family um, where the mother was deemed incapable of caring and the extended family unable to cope? Were we making the right decision when we placed that child with the adopter? Where were mistakes made? So were we wrong to place the child for adoption? What about this? Ben Butler and Ellie. Was he a victim of the system that took his child away, took the matter to the Court of Appeal and went back to the High Court where the findings were relitigated and the child was placed back with him? Was he the victim of society that meant he was wrongly denied the chance to be a parent? Or was Ellie the victim, returned only to be killed by her father a few months later? And what about this little boy, one I've spoken about twice in previous lectures? Which headline is right? Four-month-old baby with rickets shaken to death. Brain damage so severe he was incompatible with life. 2nd of November 2011. Was that the right way to report the proceedings? Oops. Or was this the right way? Just a few months later, April 2012. Same magazine, same publication, and now the same parents who've been vilified before for shaking their child to death are now there being able to proclaim their innocence. So what of these decisions is right? What of them are wrong? And what do you, the public, know about what goes on in the family courtroom that enabled each of those decisions to be made? Effectively, what needs to be remembered is that... There is no right, per se, to bring one's child up within the family home. You do not do that and cannot do that if, by asserting your rights to parent the child, you expose that child to the risk of significant harm from which they're entitled to be protected. And that goes back to previous lectures. Remember what I said, a child is not a chattel. A child has a right to grow up free from avoidable, significant abuse and neglect. And if that child, far from receiving the protection of its family and its carers, 
is brutalised or abused by it, then that child has got a right to be brought up by an alternative family. But within those two extremes, there is a wide range of options. You have supervision orders, you have family assistance orders, and you can have children placed within the family home. So there's a vast array of material that any judge making these decisions can call upon to try to make the best decision for the child. And don't forget again, going back to previous lectures, the hallmark of all of these cases and the benchmark for each of the judicial decisions is that the welfare of the child is paramount. Remind you of this quote, Mumby, our president. Society must be willing to tolerate very diverse standards of parenting, including the eccentric, the barely adequate, and the inconsistent. It's not the provenance of the state to spare parent children or the consequences of defecting parenting. In any event, it simply could not be done. The courts are not in the process of social engineering. They should not and do not remove children from families who are poor in income and education and expectation simply because they can be placed in an adoptive home with more material comforts around them. That is a, mis that is a classic misunderstanding of what the function of any family judge is. And it also explains why there are limits to what one must allow children to be exposed to. I'm about to call up a story of someone who posted an account of her childhood on Twitter, and I've got her permission to put this on the lecture and to promote it wide and far, because her story is often one that's unheard of, and she deserves a voice. Her name is Michaela. She describes herself as a dreamer, a mother, a provider, a young woman with a passion, ambition, and a strong resilience to not let a mistake as a teenager drive my life. This is her story. When I was born, I was a child in need. My parents were heavily drug dependent. I assume I came into contact as a baby with the healthcare because various healthcare professionals, my parents encountered the criminal justice system and other agencies were evolved around the drug issue. But was there any intervention? Age four, at this point in my life, I started primary school often being the last child to be collected at the end of the day, often not doing homework, not bringing in the right books or PE kits, not fitting in with the other kids, being tired, withdrawn, protective of my sisters, bruised, late, problematic at times, phases of bedwetting and little to no parent interaction with the school. Was there any intervention then? Age 11 to 12. I started high school, often late, truanting, not doing homework, disruptive, tired. I don't recall a single teacher throughout any time in my school days asking me what was going on at home. I, of course, wouldn't tell them off my own back. And this is the key point. Because as far as I, can, I was concerned, my life was normal. When I was 16, I was constantly ringing, turning up at the office of my mum's drug worker, expressing concerns over her mental health issues. Providing evidence, explaining risk concerns, no one listened, no concern still over my well-being and safety. I was 16 and a child being ignored when expressing serious, heartbreaking concerns for my mother. It's not the case that all of the professionals knew I was at risk, knew I was experiencing these things, knew I was in need but chose to ignore it. Labelling me as a teenage rebel, a naughty girl, the black sheep was easier than recognising I was a child easier than flagging up a situation of a child at risk of harm and easier than dealing with a very troubled and tra traumatised young child. 
Maybe I'm hoping, through this brief story of safeguarding, that a professional may consider viewing these rebels, these black sheep, these troubled teens as children. Vulnerable, traumatised, exploited, neglected children. We don't cry out for help. We don't open up. Now, that's something, an account you need to remember when you are reading stories in the press about kids who are in the estate who have been picked up for pushing drugs. Are they simply the lowest leaves on the tree? Why are they doing that? What's the background to it? But more importantly, what happens to them when they go on to become parents themselves and may potentially enter a cycle of abuse and neglect because their parenting experiences comes from the parenting that they have received themselves? Michaela's story is an example precisely of why the court is there to try to identify the point at which you intervene, the point at which you ask questions, and the point at which you decide that there aren't sufficient answers to those questions and that child has a right to protection. As I said before, we are all frail human beings with our fair share of unattractive character traits which sometimes manifest themselves in bad behaviours which may be copied by our children but the state does not and cannot take away the children of all the people who commit crimes, who abuse alcohol or drugs, who suffer from physical or mental illness, or who espouse antisocial, political and religious beliefs. I think what I would like you to take away from this lecture in part one is the message that Michaela herself posts, because I think it expresses what we should do as a society better than any words I can use. The test of the morality of a society is what it does for its children. And that effectively is the nub of why any of us either become family advocates or why we want to become family judges. So what do we do in terms of making decisions? What's the structure? This is a hugely complicated um, map, a root map, that I was trying to find to try to show you the type of levels at which families come into the family justice system. But in effect, the one thing I should have been pointing out to you is this one here, family court. Because in fact, under this tiny box there, at the bottom of the pile, is where everything goes. Because the family court has, since the modernisation programme, become the central hub where all the cases concerning children, whether private law or public law, and remember, private law is when you've got a dispute within the family, either mother, father, or possibly extended family members with a carer. Public law is where it's the family, but the state is involved. So of those two categories, vast, vast and diverse as they are, including divorce, financial um, uh, maintenance, etc., they all go to the family courts. And how does one decide which level of judge deals with which level of case? And that's a complicated question, but the easiest answer I can give is that there are people who spend days and hours pouring through the files called legal advisors alongside a district judge who look at the cases and try to decide what level of judge it needs. And essentially, the more complicated the case, the higher up the judge it goes. So what type of decision makers do we have in this hub of brains going on? Well, we've got district judges um, who deal with the majority of the cases, both in private law, divorce, and the simpler public, public law cases. And then above them, we have circuit judges who deal with the more complex private law cases and the public law cases. And then when things get really difficult, we've got the high court judges, the red judges. But whereas in the olden days, it used to be that cases were transferred up and out of the county court and into the royal courts of justice... Now, in the main, the High Court judges are expected to come to the family hub. 
and only in exceptional circumstances with express permission of uh, the High Court liaison judge and the designated family judge for the county court are cases actually taken out to go to the Strand to be heard within that forum. But what none of this really says is what keeps the whole system going. Because the hidden hub that makes the judges able to fill this oath are the clerks and the ushers and the court staff. Because unbeknownst to you, when you see that there are court hours saying 10.30 to 4.30, and you're thinking, well, that's a bit of a cushy life. I wish I could do those hours. What you're not aware of is that in any court system, you have people going in from 7.30 and 8 o'clock in the morning who are there in front of their screens, taking the paper, marshalling the material that's been filed, and making sure that the whole system doesn't grind down under the weight of material that's coming in and flooding into the family court system, and making sure that there's actually paper there in front of a judge or a bundle on a computer that enables them to do the job they do. And those people that keep the system going are there from eight and often stay until six or seven. In the High Court, it's not unknown for me to email at 7.45, 7.30, sometimes even 6.30 in the a.m. in the morning and to receive a message from a High Court judge's clerk that says, thank you very much, the judge is in reading the papers. This is the type of extended sitting hours that goes on outside of the public view so when you're listening and thinking about extended hours and you're thinking that it's a cushy job and why wouldn't you love to have those hours, just think about what work it takes behind the scenes to make sure that when you come to court, there's a decent chance, not a guaranteed one, as I'll explain shortly, that means that at least you'll get a hearing in front of a judge who knows something about the, the very point you're meant to be arguing. So, the oath. I will do right to all manner of people after the laws and usages of this realm without fear of favour, affection or ill will. Essentially, you as a member of the public are entitled to have an impartial judiciary making a decision on your case without their personal prejudices or opinions impinging upon the decision that is central and critical to you. So what happens? How much do you think you know as a member of the public, about what goes on within the four walls of the court system. Because as a member of the public, you aren't allowed in. You are highly dependent on the press who do have a right of entry to make sure that you are properly informed about what goes on in the private lives of those people who come before the court system. You have greater transparency, which the president has tried to promote, which means that all high court decisions are published on a website called Bailey, some decisions obviously come uh, before you as a matter of news report. But the significant thing is that when we are looking to the press to fulfil the duty that the President hoped that they would undertake, namely to inform public debate with a jealous vigilance of the informed press so that they can play a role in exposing and resolving miscarriages of justice, when he was understanding that the press needed to have access in order to make sure that the public were able to have confidence in the system so that if it was eroded, it could be restored, and if they had issues, it could be properly taken up. Where are those members of the press in the cases that I deal with and my colleagues deal with 99.5% of the cases? Because they aren't there for the 99% that involve a drug-abusing mother, a victim of domestic violence, 
a woman who's coming back having her fifth child or a sixth child. They're not there to see how the courts deal with unrepresented litigants. They're not there to see what happens when a parent gets angry within the courtroom and there's not the security staff in order to manage their distress and grief. Where are they in terms of seeing where the impact of the legal aid cuts are in terms of the ability of the family justice system to deliver the task for the public that they have taken the oath and sworn to abide by? Because they're not there. And we need them there because, as I will explain, the cuts that have happened in the legal aid system have decimated the ability of many courts in this land to do the job that they think they are there to do for the public. And that's not simply my view. It takes a lot for the judiciary to speak out about the problems they see within their service. And so when you have someone, such as Mr Justice Bodie, who retired in October 2017 after 18 years at the front line to, of judicial decision-making, then you should take heed of the words of this man. Because when he said in court in his retirement speech, I find it shaming, shaming, in this country, with its fine record of justice and fairness, that I should be presiding over such cases, by which he meant such cases, where those who needed legal representation in front of him were denied it because of cuts, then you know something's badly wrong. But was he simply a lone voice in the wilderness? Because if so, he was very brave because he was saying this in front of his senior colleagues, in front of the president of the family division, in front of those people who were still sitting and in front of the bar and the solicitors and the press? And the answer is he wasn't alone. Mr Justice Hayden, decision in 2017. This is what he had to say after managing a case in which the absence of legal aid has seriously compromised, in his view, the fairness of the trial and the abuse that was meted out within it. Because being in a family courtroom is not a pleasant experience for anyone. There are no winners when you go into a family courtroom. This is what he had to say. It's a stain on the reputation of our family justice system that a judge can still not prevent a victim being cross-examined by an alleged perpetrator. This may not have been the worst or the most extreme example, but it serves only to underscore that the process is inherently and profoundly unfair. I will go further in itself. It is a self-abusive. For my part, I am simply not prepared to hear a case in this way again. I cannot regard it as consistent with my judicial oath and my responsibility to ensure fairness between the parties. And in that instance, a woman was being cross-examined by her ex-partner, who was unrepresented, and therefore she in court had to face his questions. Can you imagine what that's like? Mr Justice Mumby, another example. The parents were entitled to non-means, non-merits-tested legal aid when facing the proceedings under Section 31. That's the, if you remember, the Children Act, where I'm saying where there's the gateway, the barrier, which is identified that gives the state the right to interfere with the rights of the family. So, stage one, the parents were entitled to non-means, non-merits-tested legal aid. And yet now when they were facing an application for adoption of their child, which is, as I've said before, the most draconian thing any judge in this land can possibly do, because we have closed adoptions in this country, and once an adoption order is made, that severs not only your physical contact with your child in the main, 
not only your ability to know what they are doing, say, through letterbox contacts, but it severs your legal attachment to them. They are no longer your children-in-law. So that is an extreme end of what the family judge does in terms of deciding where a child should be placed. And yet in this situation, there wasn't legal aid. As he said, no doubt it is some imperfection on my part, but I confess I struggle to understand the policy or rationale underlying this part of the scheme. And why are we in this situation? LASPO. The Legal Aid Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act of 2012. That was a sequence of reforms enacted by the coalition government because effectively they thought that legal aid, the presence of legal aid, encouraged litigation. Effectively, it was saying that people wouldn't go to court if they had to pay for it themselves. Not only was it looking at the range of people who might otherwise be entitled to legal aid that were abusing it, but it was also looking at eligibility, saying effectively that people should go for mediation rather than going to court. It was looking at disposable income and identifying those people who could or should pay. It provided exceptional funding for cases which didn't come within the schemes a little while later, but the question is whether that's being used adequately or at all. Essentially, what the coalition government was saying and doing, which not, would not be unreasonable in itself, is that they wanted value for money, taxpayers' value for money, out of the family justice system. But the question is whether those cuts have gone too far and what impact it's now having and whether far from being a cost-saving exercise, stopping those people from going to court who frankly wouldn't chip out or wouldn't go to court if they had an option. What's happening in our courts now are people are coming to it. They are flooding into it, but they are unrepresented litigants who are facing an unequal system when they try to argue their case. There's an impressive report and combination of um, big brains, so I shall call, who've put their minds to the impact of the LASPO cuts on the, um, the uh, legal aid system. And one of them is a man by the name of Sir Henry Book, who was a contributor to the Back Report, and he delivered this address to the annual bar conference on the 4th of November 2017, a classic understatement from a man who knows how to use his words. He described the story of the LASPO cuts as being not a happy story. He went further when he used this quote, as I can see there. No fair-minded person could read Appendix 5, which is his enormously detailed breakdown of what the impact of the cuts have been on society, without being very seriously worried about the conditions of justice today. For the millions of people who rightly expect the courts to deliver even-handed justice when they need it, and as he points out, without this help... Warring couples who are not rich enough to pay for a lawyer often have no idea the courts will put the interests of their children first or that mediation may be the best way of setting, settling the way forward. He gave this as an example. Mothers are now denying fathers all contact with their children for fear, rightly or wrongly, that they won't be entitled to legal aid or help them if their father does not bring them back. So Henry received an anonymous account from a district judge, which he read out to the Bar Council. This is the concluding segment, but to put that in place while its words are sinking into it as you read it, let me tell you what he said to introduce it. This is the account from someone who sent an unsolicited history to him. Every day in the family court with so many unrepresented litigants is a long nightmare. 
So many, very many people have mental health problems, drugs, language, learning difficulties. I can no longer do justice or protect the vulnerable child or adult. I am in despair. How can it be a quality of arms when only the person alleging abuse, which might be false, in a domestic violence sexual abuse case gets legal aid? And that leaves the unrepresented, unable to properly prepare or present their case. Every week I have to deal with people unable to pay for totally necessary drug, alcohol, DNA testing and psychological assessments and treatments. Then if there is an advocate, they end up doing all the work and in effect representing both sides. I count off the days to retirement. I would leave if escape wasn't so near. I'm in excellent health and would have stayed on many years longer. Until the last eight years, all areas of the legal system, to which as a barrister and a judge, I was so proud to belong, were advancing in dispensing justice, but now we go ever more backwards. The morale of judges and staff is on the floor for a multitude of reasons. No one has hope. So, morale is low. And why is it low, and have we gone too far? Sir Henry wasn't recommending, and nor is the Batch report, that we go back to the days as they were. But what he is saying is that the cuts have slashed deeper and harder and unfairly in a way which is now affecting the justice and the fabric of our society in terms of the ability of the courts to manage an imbalance of power and the level of need between those citizens who come before it. In a chilling episode, he had this to account. In housing law, nearly 1,000 fewer people are entitled to early legal help than was the case five years ago. One of the most poignant moments in our inquiry came with a Grenfell Tower tenant told us that when they went to their local law centre for help with their landlords, they were told they could receive no help until someone was actually threatened with eviction or until any disrepair was so bad it was seriously endangering someone's health. So, what happens to the cuts? The ex expectation was that through LASPO, about £450 million will be saved. In effect, half a billion has been cut. And that's because the decision-making, in Sir Henry's words, had been left in the hands of the technicians. And I'm effectively asking you to take home from this message the question of whether those cuts have gone too far and whether you care enough to do anything about it. Because, as Sir Henry declared, and I echo his words, if we are to become proud of our justice system again, a comprehensive, evidence-based remedial strategy has to be found. Legal aid is far too important to be left to the tender mercies of the Treasury and the technicians and the high priests of PR. A political solution built on a consensus is what is needed now, and I am pleased that the bar is willing to play its part in the search for that consensus. As I move onwards through the ninth decade of my life, I will be happy to do all, as I, all I can. Now, that is a testament, as I say, to the principle that drives people, like Sir Henry and his ilk, to serve the public in the way they do through the work that they perform, through the charitable work they do, and through the investigative and analysis, analytical work they do. But it needs more than Sir Henry to bring this to our attention. It needs the press to follow into account for what's going on in our family justice system. Other impacts? 
Consortium of expert witnesses in the family courts had this to say to the back team. Litigants in person have no access to representation or to experts' reports so that they and their children are denied justice in serious matters concerning sexual, physical or emotional abuse or neglect. And they have more to say, but I'll move on to a survey conducted by the Rights of Women. 71% of respondents said it was difficult or very difficult to find a legal aid solicitor in the area. 53% said they took no action in relation to their family law problem as a result of not being able to apply for legal aid. And that hits two ways. It's identifying that we have legal aid deserts now in the high street because solicitors simply can't afford to do what they used to do because there's not the funding there for them to provide the legal aid to the public that they want. And secondly, because the perception is that there is no, no person there to talk to, people don't go and seek them out, even if potentially they're entitled to legal aid. So the message has got through to the public that we are not there to help them as solicitors or barristers and courts, and that is simply not acceptable. Effectively, what we have now is a three-tier family justice system. Those who can afford legal aid and representation, those who are entitled to it, and those who can't. We have the rich, those who fall within the remit of legal aid, and then a, a chasm that then drops down to those that don't fall into either of their categories. And frankly, there is no way to bridge that gulf. I am grateful to those members of the press, the journalistic press, who seek out these stories, because otherwise they wouldn't be told. And a few weeks ago, there was a really interesting stream on Twitter published by Emily Duggan of BuzzFeed, who looked at the impact of these cuts in the court system. And I won't take you through this in the detail because the lecture notes, which I hope you'll take away with you and you'll follow the links, have an account which is far more detailed than I can give in the course of the time I have with you. But just look at the impact of the lack of legal aid, which is... There's been a 520% increase in people going to the free advice reservice since 2011. 2010-11, 200 volunteers helping people 9,000 times. 2016-17, 700 volunteers, 56,000 attempts to help. And what are the type of people they're helping? Are these the people that really weren't the ones that were too, well, the ones that were too tight to put their hands in their pocket because they could have afforded to pay for their legal representation? Or they were going to court because they just fancied a day out? No, they're not. Two-thirds of these litigants and people in a study that was undertaken by Birmingham didn't have A-levels. Well, many of us don't. But what more, a quarter had no formal qualifications at all. 45% of them um, couldn't say they'd understood what happened in court. 22% didn't have English as their first language. 32% had mental health or learning difficulties. Half of those had depression as well. Only 29% in full-time work and 85% of an income of less than 30000 a year. Is that what this scheme was designed to attract? And what do we know? In real terms, the budget has effectively been slashed such that it won't be fit for purpose. It was 9.3 billion in 2010 and 11. Rather than increasing the budget, we are now looking at a real terms fall to 6 billion in 2019. So, why did I apply to be a judge? Well, I applied to be a judge way before these cuts took place. And I applied to be a judge really for a number of reasons because I wanted to make a difference for the better to the most vulnerable of our society, 
because I wanted to make decisions as a judge rather than seeking to shape them as an advocate because I think I can do it well. Because I think it's really important that the judiciary reflect the public they serve. And as you would have heard from my previous lectures, I don't come from a privileged background. I come from a single-parent family. I went through the comprehensive system, and I was fortunate to succeed in getting to Oxford. And that gave me a chance to step myself onto the rung to becoming a barrister in a way that was entirely out with the experience of my family, none of whom has stayed on at school beyond the age of 16. But I never thought I'd become a judge because it simply was a question of them and us. And when I was at court as a barrister and I'd hear people talking about public duties or sitting, I thought, what's sitting? That's what we do all the time. I'm standing now, you know, if I stand up and sit, there's not very much of a difference. What's these public duties they're talking about in these hushed tones? You know, I was in awe. And then I discovered it's because they're talking about being a judge. And it wasn't until I was at Garden Court and a colleague of mine called Joanne Harris who sat as a tribunal judge and as a recorder, said to me, well, why don't you give it a go? Simply that one question. And I thought, yeah, why not? Why not? I'm bright. I can do it. And I'll apply. But that's why we have these lectures. Because unless someone looks at you or you and says, you could be a judge, have you thought about applying? Those of us for whom it seems something that's unreachable or untouchable or not part of our background or our expectations simply don't think of doing it. So, does it make me a better advocate by being a judge? I think it does. I see the whole parade of litigation skills presented in front of me, and it means that I get the whole value of both making decisions, seeing where I can make them better, and then coming back and trying to be a better barrister. And the last reason, which people don't say, but we may as well, why do you want to be a judge? It's because it is. It gives you that social tick, doesn't it? And professional tick in many ways. If you're in trouble, if there's an argument between member of the public A and member of the public B, if there's a dispute, you know, if you want to go to the front of the queue, I've never tried this, but I'd love to. I wonder if it would get me an upgrade. Would you like to say I'm a judge? Being a lowly recorder would get me none of those, I'm telling you. But if you become a high court judge and you're a lord and a lady, maybe it's got some perks. I don't know. But there is a prestige to being a judge, which it would be foolish to ignore. So, a day, a week as a roving recorder in front of me, what do you get for your money? Uh, what you get is someone that's come into court very early that's worked out that the way the system works is to get to know the clerks and the ushers and the listing officers. What you get is someone like me that understands that the clerks and the ushers who are coming out to see you um, are the eyes and ears that I need to tell me what's going on outside of the courtroom, who's turned up late, who's turned up early, who's getting a bit of aggro, who's working, who's talking to their clients, who's just having a fag. It's what you take in to understand why there's delays and what's occurring. So I make sure I know the court system, I make sure I know how the court system works, and then I go in reading the papers and genuinely listen to the parties to decide what decision it is I have to make. Because no case becomes real until you hear someone in front of you giving an account of their life history. And because I'm conscious that the decisions I make can have profound and far-reaching consequences that last for the family for a lifetime, whereas for me, it's a case, I move on, I do another. So what you get, if you're in front of me, is someone who will have read every single piece of paper, sometimes much to the chagrin of any of the barristers or lawyers in front of me when I ask them questions about what they haven't done, as opposed to what they tell me they have done.
what you get is someone who's very acutely aware of the imbalance of power within society, and I want to make sure that the parents in front of me have their stories heard and are properly evidenced. So I don't believe in hearsay evidence with local authority files simply repeating as a chronology that which happened five years before. I don't want to have a chronology. I want to have the evidence that supports the facts in the chronology. So what you get is me being a picky silk, being a very critical judge when it comes to the quality of the evidence that I'm prepared to listen to, to decide upon in order to make a decision about the children over whom I have the responsibility to make a decision. And I think that does take us back to judicial morale. Because why is it that when I look around me, I see enormous range of valuable, dedicated, enormously committed civil servants who are judges performing their role. But as I said in the lecture I delivered last month, there is a gulf between those who are judges and part-time record recorders in the lower divisions and then those who we see in the high court and above. And the higher you go up, the greater the imbalance comes in terms of diversity, gender, education, religion, minorities between the higher judges and the public they serve. And that simply is not good enough if the judiciary is to remain fit for purpose. Because if we are at a stage where there is no longer the respect given to the judiciary simply because they are judges and they have to earn the respect that is given to them because of the quality of the decisions they make, then they have to be more accountable in terms of being an acceptable and understandable, a representational a visible duplication of the society that they serve. Otherwise, you get stuff like this. Otherwise, this is what informs the view. And that is simply not acceptable. It is rare that a press headline such as that leads to a public dispute between senior members of the judiciary and the government. Liz Truss failed to come adequately or swiftly enough, in my view, to the defence of those who were simply performing their public duty. And it took the Lord Chief Justice to intervene to say why he thought she was wrong not to do so. As he said, criticism is very healthy, but there's a difference between criticism and abuse which I do not think is understood. I do not understand either how absolutely essential it is that we are protected because we have to act as our oath requires us without fear or favour, affection or ill will. So where do we go to next? Well, I am enormously grateful to the work that's been undertaken by Penelope Gibb and Matthew Rogers in their publication, Rethinking Judicial Independence, which I really recommend you read in full. I can do no more than to have identified some of its core components and to have the links within my, in the lecture notes. But I'm going to give you this teaser, so hopefully it encourages you to go off and read what they have to say, because they've taken views from those who sit at the sharp end. They've taken views from advocates, taken views from judges, and really looked critically at what the future of the justice system has to offer. But um, I'll, I'll tease you with these words of Sir Alan Moses that did the introduction to their report for you. Reasoning and speaking through judgments within the confines of a court and in no other forum was, we were taught... Um, from those, the authority, the safest rule, I'm sorry, effectively we're saying, judges don't need to speak outside their judgments. Their judgments should be their voice and they should need, need do no more explaining than that which they put in print. But what he went on to explain is, 
Whilst we need reasoned and reasonable decisions, we also need to understand how judges work and discuss and develop the extent to which they can and are willing to engage with the community. They can, in a modern society, no longer command respect from mere deference, and so say I to that. The judiciary must reflect society to maintain legitimacy. The maxim justice should be seen to be, should not only be done, but seen to be done, is ordinarily taken to require transparency, impartiality, fairness and propriety. But in a broader sense, it means that the public have got to have confidence in the system that is there designed uh, to protect them and to be the legitimate wing of the judicial process. So what do we do then when things go wrong? I think we have to acknowledge they do. Because unless you do understand that there are limitations, there, aren't really, there isn't really an effective debate to work out how to put it right. Three categories. Points of appeal, where because there's an error in law, the case is taken up through the judicial system up to the Court of Appeal. Secondly, what happens if it's not an issue of law, but it's a complaint about judicial behaviour. And then thirdly, in the most controversial category, judicial bullying. So I'm going to skim through this in a little bit of detail because I'm running out of time. Uh, but just to tease you as to what you can find out from the law reports, um, these three cases worth looking at. Effectively, in the first one, a decision of a High Court judge, Ms Justice Russell, she found a litigant guilty of contempt and sentenced him to 18 months imprisonment. And the... Um, error that was identified by the Court of Appeal is effectively she had failed to warn the complainant he didn't have to give evidence, she required him to undergo cross-examination, and she didn't permit him to give evidence in chief. Um, she didn't give him the opportunity to make submissions in mitigation before passing sentence. So on those type of bases and others, the Court of Appeal decided it was a gross and obvious irregularity, and one might see why. In the um, other case, Regi, uh, one you really should look at because the transcript itself repeats in large chunks the type of language that the judge, Her Honour Judge Pearl, was using towards the barristers who were representing the mother, the barrister. The transcript material is grim to read, frankly, but it is an illustration about what can go wrong in the courtroom when a judicial attitude tips over into legitimate questioning and case management responsibilities and effectively becomes a, um, what might be seen an unmerited and inordinate attack on one particular side. Um, as was said in the Court of Appeal, managing a trial can be challenging even for an experienced judge and it's sometimes necessary to react without much time for refined consideration. That might be referring to the pen being thrown down on the table or the, who knows. And generous allowance is made for this and the judges in the high courts do because they know how stressful and taxing it is when you're making a decision and frustrated by uh, the arguments being raised before you. And yes, there are different styles of counsel. And yes, we get counsel and advocates in front of us who try our patience because they don't ask a question once. They simply make speeches, for example. But there is a wide range of acceptable behaviour. But when you tip over it, there's got to be a recognition that they've gone too far. So what about complaints against the judiciary? Well, this list should not surprise you. There is an alternative route to take a complaint against a member of the judiciary if they use racist, sexist, or offensive language. They fall asleep in court. It's not unheard of. I haven't done it, but 
They've been generally rude. They've misused their judicial status for personal gain or advantage. They have criminal convictions or they've failed to declare a potential conflict of interest. And if you have a complaint such as that, then you make a formal complaint under the judicial uh, conduct rules. Um, there's some statistics here, which I shan't go through you now. But effectively, that's the, that's the joint head of the Judicial Conduct Investigations Office saying they're doing all right because of the 2,126 complaints they received in 2016-17, um, they've gone down. And uh, of those who were heard, uh, very few were found to have an illegitimate basis. But that does rather skim over the subject of some of these judges who really have gone beyond the pale, Mr Justice Peter Smith being one. Please read my lecture notes in full to know why. What's striking about this example is that Mr Justice Peter Smith has been a judge about whom there have been legitimate and long-standing concerns for a significant period of time. 2015 was a case which hit the news where he brought into play a personal dispute he appeared to have over a lost piece of luggage with British Airways. And since the case was concerning the airports and airline concern, there was clearly an appearance and a fear that the two issues, personal and professional, had merged. Um, there was an investigation. He didn't sit during the course of it. There was a disciplinary panel hearing set for 2017. But he resigned. So there was some justification for Joshua Rosenberg, who is a highly esteemed commentator who'd been following this story for some time, to say, it's just over 10 years since I wrote, wrote a column for the Daily Telegraph, headlined, Mr Justice Peter Smith loses his judgment, and asked the question, has the time come for him to leave the bench? And that was, in two, that was 10 years ago. So mistakes are made. But how many of them are understandable? And does that make the judges more human than we appear? Do you remember this one? Well, I don't think there would have been very many of us that were surprised um, that the, the patience of a judge can be tried when someone in court effectively hounds and abuses them with totally offensive, racist, abusive behaviour. But the reaction was... Slightly unexpected. <laughs> uh, but there we are. We all make mistakes, don't we? And uh, the complaint was made, but um, not upheld. And I think it's to Judge Patricia Lynch QC's credit that she said that her remarks were a momentary lapse of judge judgment, which should never have happened. But where do we find out what's going on? Because if you take the time, as I have, to look at the Judicial Complaints website, you will see that there is a lack of transparency. There is no details of the complaints in terms of the nature of them, against whom and for why, and on what basis they've been heard and determined and rejected or approved. It is not possible to identify whether those complaints that are made are made by unrepresented litigants or aggrieved parties as opposed to barristers or advocates. Because I think there's a significant difference between a complaint made by someone who doesn't know how the system works and therefore they make a complaint which is never going to be upheld because it doesn't fall within those criteria that the Judicial Conduct Committee looks at, as opposed to a complaint being made by a barrister or a solicitor because they really feel the judge has gone outside the bounds of acceptable professional behaviour. And that takes me to the third category, judicial bullying. Why is it we do not talk about it? 
ACAS defines workplace bullying as offensive, intimidating, malicious or insulting behaviour, an abuse or misuse of power through means that undermine, humiliate, denigrate or injure the person being bullied. And it wasn't until a colleague of mine, Mary Aspinall-Miles, posted on Twitter an account of her feelings when she perceived that she had been bullied in court. And that untapped a massive well of distress amongst solicitors and barristers who'd encountered these difficulties at courts across the land at all levels for decades and yet had never felt able to speak out. It triggered this account from a colleague of mine who I hold in particularly high esteem, Lucy Reed, known on Twitter as Family Lou, who's a pink tape blogger, who um, had a story to tell, but not one that's to be told to you, because it's still an issue that concerns and pains and distresses her deeply. And as she said, because it's so intimately bound up with the private details of her case, and because in her heart she hopes the judge in question was acting out of character and regrets their behaviour and will be mortified to read of it. That's the calibre of a legal aid lawyer who understands that there are stresses in the courtroom. But nonetheless, she goes on to say, but actually I'm not saying it because it's too hard to relive. Having done so early this week, I was unexpectedly right back there, a gibbering wreck, racked with guilt for breaking down at court, for failing a client, I didn't, but at the time I felt I had, humiliated at my inability to cope and the treatment of me in front of peers and clients, powerless to make it stop because the judge had complete control. And that's the point. In a courtroom, the judge does have complete control. The judge can ask questions of a witness which no one else would do, and the judge answers them in the way which they would not do if a barrister or solicitor was answering them. Equally, a judge can be rude to a barrister or a solicitor or to a parent or to a professional in a way which that parent, professional or barrister or solicitor simply cannot repeat back in any way for a number of reasons. The first is that as a lawyer, it is ingrained in you to respect the person that's making the decision. Secondly, you wouldn't do it because you're not going to have an argument in court in front of your client. Thirdly, you don't do it because you might be intimidated and scared Fourthly, you wouldn't do it because you know you might be in front of that judge the next day, the next week, and you don't want to make your bed even harder to lie on the next time you come before them. So there is a natural inhibitor to standing up for yourself if you're in court. And that doesn't mean to say you're a snowflake. It means it is an imbalance of power where the judge is improperly abusing their position to talk to you in a way which is unacceptable when you are doing your job, whether you're the lawyer or the professional, or talking to you with unacceptable degree of lack of politeness when you are a litigant in front of um, them. This is an example of where things go so badly wrong. His Honour Judge Robert Stephen Dodds. This is a matter that came before the courts. And just look at this language that was used. He was um, criticised for his unrestrained and immoderate language. Um, which the Court of Appeal found could only have left the advocates seeking to present on instructions their cases of the court feeling browbeating and impotent. This type of things he said, can I tell you how bitterly resentful I am at how much of my Saturday I spent reading this codswallop? And then he warned them, you can put your crash helmet on, before saying, if she, this is a child who wanted a DNA test in order to identify her true parentage, 
If she told you that the moon is made of green cheese, would you say, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir? He continued, for heaven's sake, in this day and age, just because the lunatic says, I want, I want, you don't have to respond by spoon-feeding their every wish. Yeah, there should be intakes of breath. That is despicable conduct in court. And it's not the only time that that's happened. I'm very grateful to Legal Cheek, another invaluable source of blogging that you should look at, who dug in to see what other issues there were. Where in another case, um, His Honour Judge Dodds has slammed lawyers who wanted a young boy to live with his grandparents in Poland, um, telling them this is a game of chess, not drafts. I'm not sure I get that. But that's probably why the author described it as an Alan Partridge moment. Um, but where under his groundedness, everyone in court crumbled under his caustically expressed views. And then his reaction to this was to blast the mother for looking upset and bewildered. That, again, was described by the Judicial Conducts Investigation as serious misconduct. And what more we know is that actions in three cases have been found as amounting to serious misconduct against his honour, Judge Dodds. But he remains in post. So, judicial bullying towards advocates often includes, but is not limited to, shouting at them, deliberately saying things to embarrass or humiliate them, asking themselves to justify themselves in circumstances that are unfair, calling them names, calling into question their professionalism in circumstances that are unfair. If we are in court, we are acting on the instructions of our clients. You, the judge, have no idea what advice we've given to them in private, but ultimately, whatever advice we give, we have to act on their instructions in court, and therefore, we often have to say and present proposals which may seem unattractive. Well, that doesn't mean to say that we're wrong in presenting them, because however unattractive your argument is, you are entitled to have someone put it forward for you. And that is why you should not be criticised for a judge for taking a point after legitimate voice within the bounds of professional competence, simply because it is not one with which they agree interrupting you before you've got a chance to finish your sentence, throwing down your pen, obviously putting it away rather than taking a note of the points you or your client are making, refusing to give them time to formulate their argument in response to a question you have posed. And the point is that these aren't single instances. It's where it's a sustained process that happens in court. And this type of behaviour happens. It's happened to me. It's happened to me as a silk. I can identify a number of judges in the High Court who behave in a way which we wish they did not behave in. I know of colleagues in the County Court that there are some judges about whom they would simply not wish to appear. I know of colleagues who would rather move a case and appear in front of that particular person. And that is not acceptable. Because the point is that once you are appointed as a judge, you are there until retirement. And you may be a brilliant barrister, you may be a brilliant solicitor, you may be a brilliant legal executive, such as you warrant the trust that's placed in you when you take the oath and you are appointed. But in fact, it may not be the judge that you are cut out for. Because unlike in the continent where you're trained for the judiciary and it becomes a career path in itself, in the United Kingdom, you train invariably as a lawyer, although now there are moves for academics to be able to move into judicial posts as well, and you may be an exceptional lawyer, but you aren't necessarily going to be a brilliant judge. So I say there's time for 360-degree feedback. I say it's about time we grasp this issue, because if morale in the courtroom is so low, 
because of legitimate reasons, because of the pressure that's placed, because of the lack of legal aid and the amount of pro bono work that is done by barristers, by lawyers, and the amount of assistance that's given to the members of the public by the judiciary. If we want to protect what's best about our judicial system by those that go above and beyond everything that they have obliged themselves to do, then at the very least we should have the opportunity of identifying those that don't do the job well enough, often enough, such that there should be feedback, so they're given a chance to reflect on and moderate their behaviour. So, final points. Why have I delivered this lecture? I've delivered it because I really do want to share an understanding that the role of the judge is pivotal in the lives of the people who cross the paths of the family court system, that we have a disciplined, superb, principled, ethical, enviably bright and brilliant judiciary of whom we should be proud and that those members of the judiciary have high demands placed upon them that they are struggling to meet under the weight of the legal aid cuts and that being a full-time judge is now far less attractive than it was and that means that many people who could apply, who should apply, aren't applying because they can't, they say that that's not part of their career path and that means diversity is an issue which we need to address and because the morale of the professionals who came into legal aid work as a vacation has plummeted, and we need to understand why. Because if people like me don't go into the legal aid system to do as I wanted to do, which is make it a difference to society, if those that I work alongside can't see in the youngsters coming up an ability to be able to pay themselves to perform that right, because it's an expensive process to become a lawyer and to stay in legal aid when you can earn more in other fields... And because if you, the public, don't understand what goes on in the courtroom, then when you read the press headlines, you won't be looking for the stories behind to understand and to ask questions and to decide if your money is being spent appropriately or whether effectively you're causing problems for the future because we're sweeping problems under the carpet that will manifest themselves in an imbalance in our uh, judicial makeup and the society that parades through the past of the courtroom. So please, I've given you this lecture just to make you think and to ask questions. And thank you for your time and your um, attention. And I'm sorry it's taken me into two minutes to the close of the time. And that's my final message. <laughs>